Well, good morning, and welcome to all who are visitors or guests with us this morning. My name is Dave. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm our lead pastor here. And um, question: Have you ever wondered why the genre of like books and films called fantasy, or you can call them fairy stories, why they're so popular? Um, the Chronicles of Narnia or the Marvel Universe, like the audience for fantasy as a genre is is much larger than realistic fiction. But why? Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, in his famous essay called On Fairy Stories, well, maybe you know Tolkien. He's the author also of probably the most famous fairy story of all, the the, uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. He explains it like this in, in in that essay. He says that people spend so much time and money consuming fairy stories because of the number of primordial human desires. These are like deep-seated human longings that modernity has not been able to extinguish. These include the desire for discovery, to survey the depths of time and space, and if possible, to escape death itself, the oldest and deepest desire. We also want to have communion with non-human creatures too, the birds, animals, the trees, from which we have a certain sense of alienation or separation from. Uh, Timothy Keller, in his excellent book, Making Sense of God, he summarizes Tolkien's thoughts really well like this. We want to live long enough to realize our artistic and creative dreams. We want to love without parting, and we desire to see the final triumph of good over evil. Even though we know the tales are fiction, We have such a deep longing for these things that we get a unique satisfaction from immersing ourselves in the stories, particularly if they're well told. You know, yeah, I'd buy that. I think that's true. Now, as as a Christian, Keller writes, uh, Tolkien believed that these stories resonate because they bear witness to an underlying reality. We have intuitions of the plot line of the Bible, namely that the world was made to be a paradise but has been lost. The tales bring us joy because deep down, we sense they describe the world as it ought to be, as, it was, as we were made for. Pardon me, what we were made for. I think he's right. These epic sort of tales, they resonate because they connect with the world as God intended it. They hint at the yearnings that are already there in our hearts. But what if what they point at, what if that thing that they hint at is really and truly true? In our text this morning, Paul poignantly and powerfully sketches out that very plot line, God's big story. And the big point of this letter, and to the big point of this letter, this is a story that finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And we find out that the scope of his work is large enough to swallow up all the brokenness of the whole cosmos. So yeah, yes, please. I need that kind of hope. Now, last week, we um, just a quick summary here. We, we looked at the beginning of this letter to this little Jesus community that started in the city of Colossae. And as we see, Paul is delighted. He's overjoyed that these people have come to put their trust in Jesus, the one who died and rose again for them. And they're actually growing in their faith. They're growing in their love for each other. But as we heard, there's also hints already in the letter that there's some significant concerns that Paul has. They need to stay rooted and built up in Jesus and not swayed by anything that would take their attention or devotion away from him. So there, 
in that text, Paul was beginning to pray, praying these things into the community, that they would be rooted, that they would be growing, that they would be firm in their faith, that they would grow in their knowledge of Jesus so they could live the Jesus way. But here's the thing we have to see. Paul, what he was praying in our text from last week, he now begins to do that very thing. What do I mean? I mean this, Paul is going to paint the most realistic picture of Jesus possible. It's like only when you see him for who he is will you see yourself for who you truly are too and respond in the right way. And so Paul, he's really still in the praying mode when we get to this text. That hasn't changed. But he launches into what most scholars would say is, well, it's actually a song. It's a hymn of praise that honors Jesus. And so our passage this morning falls into three parts. Part one and two are in the Jesus song celebrates Jesus as creator and Jesus as redeemer. And then part three we'll look at is our response to him. Let's pray as we begin. God, I thank you so much that you inspired this text to be written in this way so that we could have the biggest possible picture of Jesus in front of us, that we would know who you really are. And we pray that our hearts would be open to hear everything you want to say this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read from 15 to 23. Here's what Paul writes. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firmly established and firm and do not move from the hope held out for you in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which i paul have become a servant one thing you'll have noticed in this section that that it's beautiful But you've also noticed it's quite technical as well. It's like this song is really doing theology. Uh, Now, the word theology, it means the study of God. Or sometimes people define it like this. It's faith seeking understanding. In one sense, every text of the Bible is doing theology since God is the ultimate subject and object of the book. But it would be true to notice that some texts, like this one in the Bible, are... uh, doing theology in a much more technical mode, like definitions do matter. 
A.W. Tozer wrote, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. Now, I know why he says that. If there is a God, like the one described in the Bible, then we can't possibly know who we are, what, what life is for, what's wrong with the world, and what's the solution. We can't know that until we know him. Now, I happen to disagree with Tozer on this point. I think the most important thing about you is what God thinks of you, what comes to his mind when he thinks of you. Um, that you're loved and that through Jesus you can have life in his name, but the point still stands, knowing God is key. So this morning, Paul is doing theology just so that we can know more? No, of course not. So we'll know it's true, and then we'll line up our lives with that. So we'll start by examining what Paul says of Jesus, but then we'll look at why it matters for us today. So it begins with, Paul begins by describing Jesus as the creator and his role in creation, that he is the source and ground of all being. It begins like this. I'll just read the first verse again. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible. And then he sums up this way. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, if you're paying attention, you probably hit that word firstborn and said, hold the phones here. That kind of sounds like Jesus is a creature, like a created thing. Is that that right? Now, some religious groups, despite clear uh, texts that describe Jesus as God the Son, who shares the very nature of God the Father, yet is distinct from God the Father, texts like John 1.1 or John 1.18, and many others actually, some religious groups are not convinced that Jesus shares the same divine nature as the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses are one notable group. They, they argue that Jesus is the first of God's, create, uh, of God's creatures, uh, that he doesn't share the same essence or godness as God, and that God gave him power then, uh, after creating him, to participate in bringing the rest of creation into existence. Now, two very important observations. One, context defines meaning, and two, the words matter. So let's look at each of those. Verse 15 speaks of Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. But we have to read that in the context of the very next verse, which says, all things were created through him and for him. Quick quiz, how many things? All things, okay? Meaning that what is created is a part of the all and has been created by him. This means that Jesus is not one of those all things. He is separate. He's distinct from. He is not a created thing. We hear the same in John 1, that through him, Jesus uh, made all things. So Jesus is distinct. He's different from the made things. He's not part of creation. One commentator, Murray Harris, he points out that if Paul had believed that Jesus was the first of God's creatures to be formed which is what the JWs argue, then verse 16 would have continued, for all other things were created in him. He has that word, other, in the Greek language, but he doesn't use it. Why? Because he doesn't mean that. The Jehovah's Witness translation is called the New World Translation, and here it adds the word in brackets, other. Every single time it says all. So it would say all 
other things Jesus created. Why did they add that? Because they know that this is a problem for their assumption that Jesus is just another creature, not the uncreated creator. They're seeking to bring Jesus out of the category of co-equal with God the Father. Now, the great church father, Athanasius, uh, quoting Colossians 1.16, he wrote, but if all the creatures were created in him, he is other than the creatures and is not a creature, but the creator of the creatures. Now, that's a tight argument. Um, Second thing, words matter. Um, On our surface reading, firstborn in our uh, sort of thought world might make us think that the son is a creature, someone who was born. But the meaning of prototokos, which is the Greek word there, is not in reference to a created being. Now, one important point. God the son is eternal and uncreated, has existed with God the father for forever. There's never been a time when God the son was not. But, of course, Jesus was born. God the Son, the eternal word, becomes a human person. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. So in one sense, we can speak of the birth of Jesus, but not the creation of Jesus, of God the Son. Does that make sense? The point, to the point that Paul's making as well, is that the word prototokos means preeminence. For example, in Psalm 89, 27, it speaks of King David in this way. I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted king of the earth. Notice, David, um, who's the first, like the first king of Israel? Is it David? Saul, right? But he's being spoken of here as the firstborn. Why? Because the word doesn't mean born. It doesn't mean created. It means Jesus is, ex- is, is elevating him to the exalted first position It means preeminent. Further, to call Jesus the image of the invisible God, that's picking up the language from Genesis chapter 1 of what God says of all humanity. We are made in his own image. So to say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God is to say that Jesus perfectly pictures humanity as it was made to be but as we as humanity have failed to be. So now Jesus, who was born of a woman and has led the way, he he is showing God's intent for all humanity. So we can look at Jesus and say he has the preeminence and he perfectly pictures what our humanity is to look like. And he does so as the uncreated creator. The thing that's so shocking about this entire passage is as N.T. Wright uh, gets it exactly right. What this section is saying about Jesus is exactly what Jewish monotheism says about Israel's God, that he's creator, that everything is created by him and for him. That's the language of God. But here it's applied to Jesus. You might have noticed when Jill was praying her prayer this morning, she used the language of this text. But she began by addressing God, God, you are the one who created all. God, you are the one who holds all things together. And she's absolutely right to pray that. That is true. But here Paul is using that exact same language that is only fitting to speak of God, of Jesus. Um, In their excellent book, uh, Putting Jesus in His Place, the authors write this. Jesus was very much a real human being. He grew up in a dusty village as the son of a carpenter. 
He experienced the full range of human emotions, from unbridled joy to deep sorrow. He had friends and enemies. He perspired and got tired. He slept and woke. He got hungry and thirsty. He bled and died. Indeed, by some measures, he was not a particularly remarkable man. He led no army, held no political office, wrote no books, had no wife or children, left no estate, and never traveled even a hundred miles from home. Yet billions of people during the past two millennia all over the world has worshipped him as their Lord and their God. How did that happen? That is the key question. How did that happen? They go on. It was in this context of exclusive religious devotion to one God, the Lord, that the early Jewish followers of Jesus were expressing the same sort of devotion to Jesus. They worshipped him, sang hymns to him, prayed to him, and revered him in a way that believers in Judaism insisted was reserved for the Lord God alone. To make matters worse, the Christians agreed that such such honors were rightly given only to God, and then they proceed to give them to Jesus anyways. See, that's exactly what's happening in this text. Jesus is being honored with honor that only belongs to the one true living God. How? The answer, in short, that the first followers of Jesus really met the risen Son of God and saw him ascend to heaven where he rules forevermore. Their eyes, once they experienced the resurrection, were open to the reality that Jesus was filling full all of the promises of God that he had made through um, the, the Hebrew Bible, that they had come to its fulfillment, that God himself had come to them in the flesh. So Paul first centers on Jesus as preeminent as the uncreated creator. And then, since he was fully God and fully human, he can now lead the victory march over evil and death. He is the head of the new creation as well. Verse 18 And he's the head of the church, pardon me, the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, though God does authorize some leaders among his people, the church, there is at the end of the day only one leader, only one head of the church. It's funny, sometimes people say, are you the head pastor? And my answer is always, no, absolutely not. There's only one head pastor of the church. His name is Jesus. Um, So what does this mean for how we, as God's people, make decisions and where we place our emphasis in ministry? It means we look to Jesus, to his life, to his example, to his teaching, and how he makes it possible for us to be his people through his life, death, and resurrection. And then we say, what are his priorities? Those are our priorities. That's how you make decisions as a church. Jesus is the head of it. And at the end of the day, we only have one teacher, one loving Lord, and the question then comes to you, is he your leader? That's always the question. And then just look at the scope of what Jesus has accomplished. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, Christianity, at times, has focused on salvation as though uh, it particularly included individuals 
or the church as a whole, or even society. But notice, all of that is still on the human plane. This text teaches something much bigger and much more beautiful than that. Again, words matter here. Paul is not just adding rhetorical flourish for fun. He means it. Jesus' death and resurrection makes reconciliation of all things possible. This lines up with what Paul teaches in Romans 8, that all of creation has been groaning as it waits to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, the work of Jesus is not limited to the human plane. As we read, God plans to redeem and restore the whole of the cosmos that he made and loves. Now, going back to Tolkien and his essay on fairy stories, remember, he's arguing that part of our longing is to connect with the rest of creation, which we often feel alienated from. It brings us back, actually, to the beginning, to the Genesis story, where the world was as we feel it ought to be. Perfect harmony between humans and God each other, our own selves, and the rest of the created order. Here's what this means for us. Again, Keller from Making Sense of God. If Jesus really was raised from the dead and you put your trust in him, all these longings you have, desperately desired, for the world made new, for the reconciliation of all things, they will come true at last. We will escape time and death. We will love without parting. We will even communicate with non-human beings and we will see evil defeated forever. In fairy stories, especially the best and most well-told ones, we get a temporary emotional reprieve from the real world in which our deepest desires are all violently rebuffed. But if we believe the gospel, we are assured that all those longings will be fulfilled in real time, space, and history. The question is, how do we tap in to that hope? Because I need that hope. Here's where we see Paul switches from speaking of Jesus' work of creation and new creation to our place in the story. Verse 21, once, Paul says to this community, once you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, in the previous passage, Paul sketched the grand story of reconciling work through his son. Now, as biblical scholar Marianne May Thompson writes in her commentary, now the Colossian Christians themselves are being held up as a concrete example of God's reconciling work. For, though they were once estranged from God, in Christ they too have been reconciled to God and have become participants, recipients, pardon me, and participants in the great mystery of salvation. You, Paul says, you, church, you are a picture of what God, the beautiful thing God is painting, you are a picture of that work through his son Jesus. Look what he's done for you. Now I can imagine that for this little group of Jesus followers where at least some of them are being tempted to see Jesus as kind of less than he really is. This line would cause anyone who's really experienced that newfound hope with God and peace, cause them to rejoice. To sit back, and this is what it did for me this week, to sit back and say, yeah, actually, right. It's really true. 
what a beautiful thing Jesus has done for me. And to quietly and humbly say again, thank you, Lord. Just thank you. So that's our response number one from this text that we need to sit with. If what we see painted in the Jesus song, if that's true, if it could be said of us that we are actually brought like free of accusation before the living, holy God, boy, you have reason for joy. You have reason for rejoicing. Now, that doesn't mean faking a smile. It really doesn't. It means saying, maybe in the middle of all the mess and heartache, but God. See, see God's the subject again. But God won't let that be the end of the story, and he really won't. That's what this text says. Now, I can imagine that, depending on where you're coming from this morning, or or even for Christian people, perhaps, if you've been drinking deeply from the waters of secular humanism that say, well, we're basically all just good people. We might initially respond to hearing this text by thinking, like, enemies of God? Why would he describe them in such bleak terms? Like, could that really be said of my behavior, that it's evil? Isn't that taking things a a bit too far? You might be saying something like that. Or you might be saying something like this. Okay, sure, I haven't been perfect, but who expects anyone to be perfect and perfectly holy, right? Well, interesting that you asked. God does. He actually created us to be holy and whole in our relationships with him and others. Verse 22 says that, we get presented as holy in God's sight. You and I were made to be holy, to be perfectly in tune with God and his ways. So there's that, actually. (laughs) Like God does expect you to be rightly related to him and others and, and to do so perfectly. And that's why Jesus, being fully God and fully human, who did live a perfect life, that's why he matters so much. That's totally Paul's argument here. Apart from Jesus, your resume before God, what you've done, it actually says you're his enemy. And that's true of me because I know my resume. His perfect holiness would burn up anything that is not holy. Regardless then of what the resume of your life says, it is ultimately inadequate before the holiness of God. And that bad news, that actually makes the good news, which is literally what gospel means. It makes the good news so very good. Paul says that through Christ's physical body through death. We are now wrapped in Jesus' perfect resume so he can present us as holy, like blameless, faultless, free from accusation before God. How could that possibly be true of us? How could it possibly be true of me? I know my resume and I know that God knows my resume. How? Because Jesus did it all. And now reconciliation with God is not only possible, it's ours to live in. So the question comes back, are you wrapped in Jesus' resume? See, a a moralizing, or you might say religious approach to God might say something like this, well, if I obey, then God, he has to accept me. In this case, you're still relying on your resume, if that's you. And often people will do this to be able to say, hey, God, I've done my part, now you need to do yours. Like we can put God in our debt Or others do it because it makes them feel superior to others. They say, hey, look, I got my life back on track. What's your problem? But a gospel response says, man, I've already been accepted by God through Jesus. Therefore, it's my joy to obey. 
And when we get this, man, it works that superiority right out of our hearts. Because I know there's nothing I could do to save myself. I completely rest on God's grace. And now that enables me to be gracious to other people. So have you placed yourself in his loving, reconciling embrace? Is that where you're living from? He makes it possible. You take it today. And so what now? Well, here's our second response point. All that's promised here, being presented as holy and blameless, free of accusation, look what it says next. It's all ours if you continue. Now, that's called a conditional clause. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and and not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you've heard. Now, we might be thinking, man, is, is, is Paul saying this to make us wonder, like, Maybe God doesn't love me. Like, am I in? And we could become frantic if, if we're saying, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not in. That is not why Paul's writing this. This is actually a statement of confidence for those of genuine faith in Jesus, not a lack of confidence. Paul doesn't say this to make his audience feel insecure, unless they have good reason to, I suppose, but to remind them that the only place where they, where they can be secure is in Christ and, and in him alone. Remember, some in this church are being tempted to think, oh, you know, Jesus is really less than he is, but that's untrue of him. Paul's big point of narrating the identity and work of Jesus is to say, he is God, our creator and redeemer, so persevere in him. See, put another way, if you move beyond him, if he is the source of life and redemption, if you step outside of that realm, what hope is there for you? That's what Paul's saying, that there's, there's no other place to be saved but in him, so stay here. <laughs> so it's not beware, it's persevere. Be rooted in Jesus, stay planted in him. That's why Paul will continue over and over again to say things like, be rooted in Jesus. I mean, that's the whole, uh, the whole point. The thesis of his book comes out in 2.6. It says, be firmly rooted in him, established and built up. That's where your faith needs to be. That's why Paul says we're to continue in the faith. For, one other thing, the verb for continue here has the sense of remaining in a location, in a place. N.T. Wright says it well. He says, it makes good sense to see faith as a place where Christians must remain rather than just the activity of believing. So it's not, faith in Jesus is just, it's not just a cognitive exercise. It's not saying, okay, today I think certain things about Jesus. Though it's necessary to think good and true things about him, what matters is maybe there's a day where you're doubting. Maybe there's a day where you're confused. The issue isn't, am I confused sometimes or do I have doubts sometimes? The issue is, will I keep trusting here? Am I planted here? Will I live out of this place? And that place, Paul says, is in relation to Jesus as he really is. So what do we do with that? Well, we ask ourselves, am I looking past Jesus for something more? Maybe I want this like ecstatic religious experience and I've just got to leave Jesus and his stuff behind so I can experience like, maybe it's in the New Age movement or maybe it's in some sort of other sort of place? Or am I being tempted to mix a little bit of Jesus and what I like from the Jesus stuff with a little bit of whatever other spirituality I happen to particularly like? Paul's point, again, is you will only stand if you're standing here, so stand there. For God himself, in all his fullness, was pleased to dwell in Christ. Jesus is the beginning and the end, so keep rooted there in him. 
that second response, and it's persevere in Christ. Now, perseverance, if it means this, okay? If Christ is Lord of all, the one who redeems all of creation, that means there is no area of our lives, no moment of the day, no category, no compartment, no room in our thinking, speaking, even our gestures, where Jesus does not have the right to rule over it. There's a lot of reasons why people first come to Jesus. Maybe they've just lost a romantic relationship and they're feeling heartbroken and they hit their knees and they're saying, God, I need help. Man, they've come to the right place if they've come to Jesus. But what happens when the heartbreak goes away? When the next gal comes walking by, do they drop their commitment to him to pursue her? Because, well, it doesn't hurt anymore. Therefore, I got what I really wanted from Jesus and I don't need him anymore. See, some might first come to Jesus as a way to find something else, comfort, belonging, peace, uh, good moral instruction. These are all wonderful byproducts. But if your faith just stays there, it's treating Jesus like a ticket. What do I mean by that? Here's how one preacher puts it. Um, Jesus isn't a ticket to something else. Go to a hockey game. Go to a concert. What do you find in the garbage and strewn all over the floor afterwards? Tickets. Because the ticket is only there to get you what you really want, which is to see the show. Paul's concern, my concern, is that some might treat Jesus as a ticket in the same kind of way. Ticket's something you really want. But Jesus is the show. So if you're here and Jesus is just, I mean, if he's just anything to you, think of the Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is just all right with me. Um, If he's just a ticket to the thing you really want, then you desperately need to embrace the first part of this passage again. Go back to that Jesus song and let it sink in. Let him be not your ticket, but your Lord and your everything. And when he is, well, that is contagious. We'll be compelled by what we've experienced and we'll want to invite others to experience the same thing in Jesus. And that's our final response. Um, See, Paul says that the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Now, you might think that's problematic. One quick point on the verb proclaim. It's best translated is proclaimed rather than has been proclaimed. And I'm pretty sure we don't need to have a discussion about the aorist verbal aspectual theory and what it means for the aorist verb here. But Paul knew very well that the task of taking the message to the whole world has not been accomplished. And to say it is proclaimed means that the task is now being done. What does he mean? Again, N.T. Wright is helpful. From whales to waterfalls, the whole created order has, in principle, been reconciled to God. Because, well, Jesus has done everything necessary to make that possible through his death on the cross for us. Like a sovereign, like a king or queen, making a proclamation and sending off his heralds to bear it to the distant corners of the empire, God has in Jesus Christ proclaimed once for all that the world which he made has been reconciled to him. His heralds scurrying off to the ends of the earth with the news are simply agents, messengers of this one antecedent authoritative proclamation. And Paul is one of them. And guess what? So are you and so are we as a community. That's our together task as a church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text that tells us the truth of who Jesus is. And I pray, God, that it is just my desire 
as it was Paul's, that this is what the church would hold on to. Jesus, that we would see that you are not only the son of man, but also the son of God. That you have done everything necessary to put us back into right relationship with you. And not only that, to put the world back, the universe back into its proper order. So we thank you for this, Jesus. And for anyone who's here who maybe has been treating you as a ticket, God, I pray that they would find their deepest allegiance and devotion to you and you alone. And that, Father, you would send us out with this good news that through Jesus, all things are being reconciled so we can respond in faith now. God, send us out for your glory. Amen.